<coughs> when Chazal refer to this parsha, they refer to it as parsha's Bilam rather than as parsha's Bolok. Um, the reason is because this is the prophecies of Bilam. When the Gemara Baba Basra discusses who wrote what, what things were written by which, by which prophets, so it goes through all the list of the prophets and who wrote what. And for example, the Sefer Yeshaya, Yeshaya didn't write his own work because he was dead by the time his work was written. So therefore, um, in many of the cases, the Anshei Knesset Hagdola had to write or possibly finish off the work. In the case of the Torah, there's a question as to who wrote the last eight, possibly twelve psukim. Other than that, the entire Torah from Bereshus was written by Moshe. Yet, the Gemara refers to Parshas Bilam as separate and apart from, um, from the rest of the Torah. It says Moshe wrote his work as well as the work of Bilam, as well as Parshas Bilam. Which is an interesting in itself, that's something which we're not going to get into in terms of a discussion as to technically what that statement really means. But in effect, it, so to speak, says that the parasha of Bilam is set apart from the rest. The, um, the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu is not the one who was given the prophecy, or wasn't part of this particular occurrence, or an incident, shouldn't be a reason to call it set and apart, because after all, Moshe wasn't around from voracious all the way till Shemos, till his birth. Yet he wrote that, that was part of the communications. The, the way to understand it, of course, would be that whereas the rest of the Torah was transmitted to Moshe, and Moshe, in a sense, was, a, um, was writing dictation, so to speak, from God, in the case of the parasha of Bilam, before Moshe even got to it, it was already Torah. In that sense, that's why the Sifri says at the end of parasha Sosabrocha that Bilam is considered the equivalent of Moshe because not only was prophecy given through Bilam, but Torah was given through Bilam. That's what it comes down to. Whereas the rest of the prophets, the rest of Tanakh, is considered prophetic writings or uh, holy writings in terms of scripture, the, the Torah is set in apart from the rest of Tanakh and is considered Torah. Only Moshe was given transmission of Torah. Nobody else was given transmission of Torah. True, Moshe wrote down the prophecies of Bilam, but it seems that it was already Torah independent of being transmitted to Moshe. So in that sense, one could say that the Parshas of Bilam is, is very unique. It actually becomes part of the Torah, and for that reason we find that Chazal say that Bilam was an alter ego or a mirror image or an equivalent of Moshe. Exactly what that means is still open to, to discussion in terms of trying to understand how that, that comes about. What then becomes very, therefore very, very odd is that you have a person of Bilam's character giving over Torah, giving over and being on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu and being of that kind of prophetic level. And, and right away, the Chazal comment on this as to how can that be that Bilam should be the equal of Moshe Rabbeinu, certainly in terms of this prophecy. So you have over here, you have the following Rashi. Let's take a look at Rashi on Posik on Posik Hay. The 
It's on page 395, first column, around seven lines down. No, about five lines down. The Mitoimar, Mitnei Mahishra HaKadosh Baruch Hu Shechinoso Al Oved Kachovim Rosha. For what reason did Hashem allow the Shechina to descend and to be able to, to become part of a guy who he calls an Ovid Kachov? I don't know if it's a generic term here or literally, but in any case, a guy who was wicked. The reason is in order not to give an opening to the nations of the world to say, had we have given, given prophets, we would have also done well. Hashem demonstrates this by giving them a prophet equal on the same level as Moshe. They impart together and we see what occurred from it. They actually broke down the fence of the world. That at one time there was a kind of, uh, I guess you could say, a Victorian morality. The reason why I call it Victorian is because the morality was more public than, than actual, than real, than private. So like in the Victorian era, people were moral, but that was like a public face. But at least there was a public face of morality. It's almost like trying to contrast the gay 90s with nowadays the gay 90s. The gay 90s, 100 years ago, was a time everybody was happy and, you know, there was a moral face, a public moral face. Yes, what people were doing behind, you know, there was a lot of hypocrisy, but there was a sense of morality that the world had. Nowadays, 100 years later, we have another period known as the gay 90s, but it means much different than what it did 100 years ago. There's been a total breakdown of, uh, of public morality. That's really what Bilam did. What Bilam accomplished was to break down the, the public morality. And he's a Navi. Hashem is saying, in effect, having a prophet, being a Navi, is not going to guarantee spiritual perfection. And therefore, and therefore, there's a lot of lessons that one can actually learn from Bilam, moral lessons that one could learn from Bilam. In fact, what we'll do over here is is although this is a lesson that we've once discussed already before, but it's worth at least reviewing it somewhat briefly. So if you look on page 3, that would be a way of, we'll review this particular lesson that we could learn from here. Something which we've done a number of years ago, but let's take a look at this, at this particular piece again. And then we'll take some specific moral lessons from Bilam. The... It comes from Seifu Lev Aaron, from Aaron Baxt. It says like this: "Im yesh omnam legoyim pischan pel lita in sheilu hayulam nevim hayuchaisim lemutav, matshuva hizula shehemid lehem chacham navi kibilam." If the goyim were complaining in a sense that they weren't given any kind of moral guidance by prophets, then exactly how does Hashem solve the problem by giving them a bilam, who, as we know, had many bad character traits. We're going to go through some of them more, more specifically. But of course we know the mission in Pirkei which we'll take a look at shortly again, about the fact that the character traits of Bilam was of a very, of a very loose moral kind. Bilam was a very haughty person. He was a jealous person. 
he was a lustful person and he had what we would call the evil eye in fact his powers were in that it's interesting um, just briefly to mention Reb Chaim Vlozhner says when he was asked this question how does one reconcile the fact that Moshe and Bilam should be on equal levels how could they perceive and see the same things when they're totally opposites and we know that in order to be in order to be a prophet you have to be spiritually as well as morally perfected how can that be intellectually perfected that's one thing and Bilam could be that but how about the rest of what goes along with prophecy so he gives the example of the bat and the eagle the bat and the eagle says the bat and the eagle both know I guess this is as a parable I don't know if it's actually scientifically true but the bat and the eagle both know exactly when it's high noon and when it's midnight at the darkest but they come about the exact same knowledge to totally opposite means the the eagle who sees far and sees distant and needs the light of day and the sun as the sun becomes brighter and brighter as he's able to see better and farther and could see clearer knows that he feels strengthened the lights increasing he's able to see far he's able to soar over the world and see it all as it starts getting darker and darker he finds his powers weakening he finds his powers weakening he finds himself being able to see less with less clarity with less vision and he feels bad he feels despondent and he feels weaker and his strength ebbs and as it gets darker and darker till finally reaches midnight again using midnight as an allegory of the darkest part he feels at his weakest at noon he feels the strongest at midnight he feels the weakest the bat is quite the contrary he can't even look at the light of day he doesn't really have eyes and as it gets brighter he finds himself not able to function he has to hide in the caves but as it starts getting darker he finds his powers growing he finds himself able to to feel and to see better than the other creatures at the darkest part of the day at midnight the bat feels at its best at its peak comes out that the bat and the eagle both know exactly when it's noon and when it's midnight they both know when the sun is at its most powerful and you can see clearest they also know when it's darkest the difference is that the bat feels strong when it's dark weak when it's light the eagle is just the opposite the greater the light the more vision the stronger it is the weaker the light the more despondent the more down the weaker it feels we know that the Gemara tells us that Bilam's power was the power of cursing he was able to find that moment in time when God looks at the world very critically very judgmentally and he's able to then take advantage and utter a curse did Moshe did Moshe have that same capacity the question did Moshe know it but Moshe was able to intuitively feel it when Bilam is soaring around flying around like the bat Moshe knows uh oh this is the part where he feels the weakest this is the part where we find it throughout the course of Jewish history in the desert Moshe falls on his face and cries out to Hashem and feels he actually loses his strength is the expression that sometimes Chazal referred to it Moshe falls on his face when? when he sees the spiritual darkness descending when he sees the Shekhinah depart the light of the Shekhinah depart and he feels the spiritual darkness overwhelm him 
he feels at his weakest. That's the part Bilam also knows, but that's when Bilam feels strongest. When Moshe feels down that there's so much darkness in the world, that's when Bilam is able to take advantage. That moment in time when Hashem is looking critically, judgmentally at the world, Bilam is at his peak powers, flying around like the bat, and Moshe Rabbeinu feels weakest. Yet, on the other hand, when God reveals His glory to the Jewish people, and they're able to see the total glory of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and Moshe Rabbeinu is soaring and is at his greatest and most functional, and he's giving Torah to the Jewish people, what do we find by Bilam? No fill, that's when he falls down. We find when the Shekhinah finally does come to Bilam, Bilam falls on his face in the overwhelming experience of Shekhinah. He can't stand it. They're both able to then perceive the same things. They both could perceive the light, they both could perceive the dark. But one is a bat, one is an eagle. In that sense, Bilam and Moshe are mirror images. They're opposites, they're alter egos. They're able to see and perceive the same things. They're both attuned, but they're attuned in opposite directions. And one is, when one is midnight, the other is at high noon. Seems like they're almost an allegory for the Yitzhah. Well, they're, they're an allegory for a lot of things. What did you say? You heard this? No, I, I heard uh, something that uh, Bilam fell because he didn't have a bris. He didn't have a bris. That's correct. The Vayikor, Elohim el Bilam, rather than the Vayikra. A lot has to do with the Lashon of Keri and Mikra um, Laila. But it's, it's a Lashon Tuma, as Rashi explains over here. And Laila, the idea of Mikra Laila, which is something that occurs at night in the dark, uh, Tuma nocturnal emission, and Vayikor Elohim el Bilam, Bilam, is able to get his powers the same kind of way. And, um, and as a result, but it's the same idea though, that Bilam is doing it from a vantage point of Tumah, whereas Moshe Rabbeinu's Vayikra, it's, um, it's like the angel. But the, that, that's maybe part of it. But at least what, what the Chaim Vosher is explaining though, with this, with this metaphor, with this muscle of the bat and the eagle, is how it's possible for two people to be on the one hand viewed equally, but, but they're total opposites. But in any case, however one understands the Bilam-Moshe relationship, which we've talked about at other times, and we're sort of going to be touching on some of those themes right now, but I'm going to try focusing more on something else later. But just by way of introduction, let's go through this piece. So his question then is, so what exactly is it that Hashem is solving by answering the nations of the world, what exactly even is this problem that he has to really feel compelled to respond to? And the nations are saying, well, of course the Jews are the Jews, but they had uh, prophets and all that. And Goyim have no prophets. It's interesting. I don't know if any of you ever were at the Discovery Series. But one of the things that they point out is that, is that even in Christian, even in terms of uh, Christian theology and religion, there's a book over there by, uh, I don't remember who it was, some Christian theologian, proving the, the truth of Christianity by the fact that some like 365 prophets and prophecies were, were given in the ancient days and they're all fulfilled. The thing is when you go through all of that you'll see that most of it has been hijacked because most of it comes from the Old Testament. Very few New Testament prophecies are there that they're actually claiming that aren't really rather vague sort of Nostradamus style prophecies that could be referring to anything and anybody. But the bottom line is, prophecy was an institution that was recognized that was unique to Judaism. And even 
Islam, and you know, you go through their list of prophets. Well, you have the whole New Old Testament, then you have Jesus, and then you have Muhammad. You know, the last Jewish prophet was uh, Chagai Zechariah Malachi. That was uh, what, like around 500 BCE. All of a sudden, you're skipping 500 years to the next prophet, then you're skipping another 500 years to Muhammad for the next prophet. Christians also they don't they don't accept Muhammad. But I mean you have the Old Testament. Okay, they'll maybe throw in John the Baptist or something as being somewhat of a prophet. And then Jesus. But you know, again, you have the gap of hundreds of years where prior to that you have prophecy and prophets mentioned throughout the entire so called Old Testament. Besides the major prophets, which are the titles of the books, but you have throughout mention of many prophets. Bineihanavim they're called sometimes the uh, disciples of the prophets. So, prophecy was a, an institution unique to Judaism. Goyim are going to complain, well, we didn't have prophets to set us straight, so therefore it's not our fault that we are what we are. So Hashem says, okay, I'll give you, a, I'll give you one shot over here with Bilam, and you see what happened. So his question is, that I mean, so this is the kind of prophet you're going to give us? You're going to give us a prophet who's a bat? Give us an eagle. Give us somebody who's up there. Don't give us a bat for a prophet. I mean, that's what you have. Batman, right? That's what you have nowadays. You have Batman 1, 2, and 3, and whatever it is. So instead of giving us a Batman, give us, give us an eagle. You know, the Rambam was called Hanesher Hagol, the great eagle. Mimosha, Lomosha, Mayokum, Kamosha, Mosha, it was the eagle. Give us an eagle, don't give us a bat. So no wonder we are the way we are, because, you know. So the question is, so how does this really solve the problem? So he explains to us a very important insight, one which we've already talked about previous years, but it's still. Ulam chazal I'm going to read through this rather quickly since it's a rather long piece here, and I want to get to the other ones in the second paragraph. Ulam chazal If you can't follow along, that's okay. You could follow outside as well as inside. Second, uh, on the third page, second paragraph. I'm just going to try going through it quickly, so whoever follows inside follows. If not, not. What Chazal are trying to teach us is something else. They want to, do, un, to uncover for us, to reveal to us, the nature of the mistake of what the Goyim's claim is. The Tos HaGoyim Bashkafosim, their vantage point, their perspective on understanding what, what leads to moral and spiritual perfection is flawed from the very beginning. They view that if you teach people, you educate people, the more educated you become, the more enlightened you become, the more knowledgeable you become, the more sophisticated and cultured you become, the better the person you are. And therefore they view morality as, as being something dependent upon your level of knowledge and education, right? The assumption is that if you're a hick, then you're going to be of a lower moral um, standing. On the other hand, if you're college educated and more cultured and more sophisticated, you're on a higher level. And therefore, the view is that chokhmah and noishis, human enlightenment, human wisdom and understanding and knowledge is the key to, to being a better person. They don't recognize or understand or appreciate that which we have by having Torah. Torah is not merely just a question of making you smarter and wiser. But there's something special uniquely about the training that the Torah gives you. By following it, not only by learning it,
but by learning it and putting it into practice. There's a special segula to Torah. There's a special nature that Torah has. They don't recognize that there's something uniquely special about the Torah's ability to influence the human soul. The Shaper Midosa. And it's only through the Torah that a person fixes up his Midos, that he's able to perfect his character. And to sensitize his soul and his heart. It's only the the fact that as Hashem says, Barasi Yitzhahara, Barasi Torah Tavlin, Torah is the only antidote for the Yitzhahara. All they see in the Torah is something else. Heimrov the Torah say for Chukim. They make fun of the Chukim. That's last week's Pasha, right? They make fun of the Chukim. And maybe that's why Pasha's Bolok follows Pasha's Chukas. Chukas is the nations of the world laughing at the Jews saying, what do you gain from the Torah? It's all a list of Chukim. Which literally binds and forces the citizen to follow the dictates of the Torah. It like forces you into a bind. And therefore, they mock it and make fun of it. The Goyesha approach to perfection, perfection of the soul, as well as Shippur Hamidos, as well as character perfection it's through enlightenment it's through learning it's through wisdom and understanding and therefore the Torah is full of chukim and constraints and it's primitive but it's not going to make you a better person to be better you need to be more enlightened so what you have really is is the idea of the chukim that the going make fun of such as laws of Nida going make fun of that Primitive blood taboos. What is it exactly? It's you know, it's uh, something from the ancient days, from the from blood taboos and superstitions. So they make fun of it. The bottom line, and therefore they'll say, "No, how are you gonna have a happier life? Wisdom, enlightenment, going to shrink, going to marriage counselors, reading magazines and books, and and this way you're gonna have a happier life." Of course, the the bottom line is. You have a lot of smart people out there, but they're still getting divorced. And they're still having miserable home lives. Their, their, their lives are still uh, misery. In fact, you know, it, it's a pillow, but I mean, I don't know how many shrinks that people go to for marriage counseling, marriage counseling and, and all kinds of therapy. How many of them are actually married for a long period of time? I mean, are they on their second or third or their fourth marriage? Are they even married? I mean, these are the people that are giving advice. And, and the government still view things this way. They still view life that the more you know and take a course, get educated, go to college and become enlightened, watch some radio, some television talk shows, you become an instant armchair expert, you become a, a psychoanalyst by watching these other people and now your life is going to be much happier. So they view knowledge as being the key to happiness. Or the key to bettering whatever, relationships, parent-child relationships, husband-wife relationships. They view going to therapy sessions and going to shrinks and psychologists and psychoanalysts and experts as being a way of bettering your life. Following that logic, if you yourself are the expert, if you yourself are the therapist, you're on easy street. Once you have all the insights of psychology and psychoanalysis and psychiatry, 
then for sure your life is much better. That's called Chochmah. Wisdom, knowledge, learn more, understand more. Now I see it all. I see the light. That's what enlightenment is. I see the light. I understand what makes people tick. In fact, what is the whole approach of psychiatry? And psychology is, made, is mainly get in touch with your own feelings. I'm not trying to knock, by the way, the, the importance of, of knowing yourself and knowledge. I'm not advocating that people should be dumb. There's, no, there's nothing great about being dumb. Stupid people and dumb people and unenlightened people are not going to be happier for it, although they say ignorance is bliss. But that's not the point. But wisdom alone and analysis and enlightenment alone does not lead to happiness, does not lead to a better person. You don't become better by knowing more. As useful as knowledge is, but the bottom line is you're not going to be any happier and you're not going to be a better person merely by being more sophisticated, by being more enlightened, by being wiser. But the Goyesh view on this is know and you're better. The more you know, the better you are. Go to college not merely so you should earn a living, but you should become a better person. That's really what it is. You go to college, the assumption is you're a better person. That's the assumption. You go to college and the more you know, the more insights you have and the more wisdom you have, and the more the better the, the better person you are morally. Uh, I, I, I don't want to use the word spiritually because that's a word that nowadays is not really very popular, but the equivalent of spiritually. The assumption is that if you, that the more you know the the equivalent of spiritually better that you are. But we all know that that's not the case. The people that are wise are not any happier, they're not any morally perfected, they're not, their characters aren't any better, they're not better people as a result. Hashem is trying to show the fallacy of this viewpoint, which we still haven't really learned. Although we, in our generation, are aware of this better than anybody else. Because we know the answer is certainly not with technology. We also know that culture and all of these things aren't going to make you better. Maybe a hundred years ago, in the period of, of enlightenment, and two hundred years ago, in what they called the age of reason, they thought reason and intellect, that's going to be the salvation of mankind. That was, let's say, two hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, maybe you had what they would call culture and sophistication will be the salvation of mankind. Let's say even the two of them together, the age of reason, enlightenment, wisdom, technology, science, as well as being culture, culture, right? And therefore you have books and literature and music, technology certainly. Well, you know, the Germans had it all. They were really advanced technologically. They were very advanced culturally. But the moral decadence that's there, we also know nowadays, I mean, uh, every time you go to any cultural function, I mean, I don't go to cultural functions, I'm sure most of you don't either. But everybody's wearing these AIDS ribbons because all the people that are at the height of culture are dying like flies because of AIDS, right? I mean, every time there's a Hollywood something or other, AIDS becomes their major thing that, and, and they're all mourning AIDS. Everybody has friends that died of AIDS. I don't even have one friend that died of AIDS, you know that? I, don't, I have not one acquaintance that I know, or that I used to know, that died of AIDS. Yet you'll always hear this became a truism, certainly amongst the cultural elite and the intellectual elite, that everybody has Tons of friends that have been dying by AIDS, right? That's what you hear. Listen to talk shows, radio, on television, read it in the print media, in the magazines. Everybody has friends that died of AIDS. Why? This fashion designer died of AIDS. That musical genius died of AIDS. This composer, this uh, writer, this uh, journalist, that um, director. Everybody's dying of AIDS. Who? In the cultural elite, in Hollywood and Broadway, 
they're all dying of AIDS. But I don't know anybody that's dying of AIDS. Like the Carison wrote an article on that. Who? Carison. Oh, yeah, Ray Carison, yeah. Ray Carison. That uh, the government should devote, give more money for other diseases, not sure. only AIDS. Everybody's talking about they're AIDS. They're all talking about AIDS and, and there's none of being done. so many, like lupus and other diseases right. that require more money. Cancer and then, of course, uh, heart disease. Yeah. And when you think about it, that's the only disease that's really somewhat self-inflicted that you could avoid. But it's uh, true they get it other ways, but yeah. you know, that's the way it started. Yeah, but that's, that's not why they're making That's the way it started. There. The, the, well, more than that's the way it started. The reason why there's so much concern, they'll trumpet the people that God has a hemophiliac or a child that gets it. But the reason why they're so concerned, the reason why they have such a, a why they're taking it with a vengeance, is because of all the other people that are getting it as a result of self-inflicted causes. The, the, it's always good for sympathy for the poster to have a little child or to have this innocent person that got it from a dentist to have her speak in front of everybody. You know. But how many people like that are there? That's not a reason why we're going to spend billions and billions of dollars because of those few individuals that got it from the dentist or hemophiliac. I mean, hemophilia itself is a problem. No one even talked about hemophiliacs until AIDS came around, until the age of AIDS. So, in general, one has to understand. But, but the fact remains... That, that to a great degree, culture, the cultural elite, elite, and the intellectual elite, are the ones that are more morally decadent. So I mean, we living in our generation know how true is what I've been saying, but, but we're still blind ourselves to it. A hundred years ago, the possibility existed, and two hundred years ago, the possibility existed where this kind of a statement should be believed, namely that the reason why people are morally uh, degenerate is because they lack cultural and intellectual sophistication and knowledge and education. Educate people, give them some culture, give them some sophistication and knowledge, and now they will be better individuals. People believed that 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Nowadays, people are so stupid that they don't believe it because everybody knows it's not true, but they pretend to believe it. I mean, that's really, we're really living in an era of moral stupor where we're just like sitting down, pretending all of these things to be true, and we know. There's not one person who has any sophistication that doesn't recognize the truth of what I'm saying. You ask anybody out there, everybody will agree automatically. Obviously, you're not going to be necessarily a better person or even a happier person by being educated. So if everybody recognizes this truth, why do we still go with the assumptions of 100 years ago and 200 years ago that if you're cultured and sophisticated and intellectual, you're a better person? So in the era of Dillon, before we were able to see the Holocaust, the World War II, and Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and we're able to see the fruits of science and technology, and you're able to go on the, uh, the superhighway of the internet, and along the way you go through all these red light districts. Recently there was a survey that some like 80, I mean, I don't know the, the, the terms for this, but 80% of the downloading of, of different things is pornography. What? 90%. Really? Yeah. But I mean, that, 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 that's what everybody's downloading on the internet. So I mean, you go on this superhighway and you're going through slums. That's really what it is. The whole superhighway is turning into a slum. You're going through red light districts on this information superhighway. Everything's a red light district. The difference though is that it's all open. That everybody recognizes how true it is that nowadays you're not any better because you know more. Yet people still go with these fallacious assumptions that if I only go to the expert, they know. How can anybody believe that? How can anybody believe that the experts 
are going to help you when they can't help themselves. When they themselves aren't any happier. So what am I going to go to the shrink for? What am I going to go to the therapist for? Or the counselor when they can't even help themselves? I mean, it, it's, it's so stupid. It's so asinine. But the reason is, I mean, I understand the reason why everybody thinks like that. Firstly, because people are still living, you know, it's hard to give up the beliefs, the precious beliefs from 100 and 200 years ago and everybody's still living, you know, behind the times. And the second thing is that there's nothing else to grasp onto. Mm. This is a straw that they're grasping onto because otherwise, what else is there in life? If there is, if Chochmah is not the cure-all, what else do you have? Pulls the wrong world out of many <laughs> fundamentals. Right. The only thing that's left then is Torah and nobody wants to go along with that. Yeah. Why not? So that's really what Hashem is trying to demonstrate with Bilam. Mm-hmm. What the lessons that we see in the 20th century, we have a massive Bilam known as the 20th century. If one wants to take and epitomize all that we have nowadays, what you come up with is a Bilam. Think about it. Take everything together. Technology, science, intellect, insights, psychic phenomena, alternate healing, shrink, psychology, therapy. That, that's Bilam. All this was the greatness of Bilam. And together with that, you have all of the perversions of Bilam. Bilam was living with his donkey, right? Bilam was advising promiscuity. Where does all the advice come from nowadays about, uh, you know, censorship? And first, I mean, it all comes from the universities, right? Intellectual, whatever it is, and, and uh, academic freedom, right? Academic freedom is what they use to, not, not the Leonard Jeffries himself, but the intellectuals that defend the Leonard Jeffries, they're saying, hey, you have to have that, otherwise you don't have academic freedom. Therefore, you have to have every crackpot theory of prejudice and bias and some people and nice people and all for the name of the God of academic freedom. Every perversion, whether it's from the gays to the, I mean, you have artistic freedom is upgrade, right? The National Endowment of Arts. When you're dealing with the National Endowment of Arts, yeah. oh, you got to help them. Why? Because they have to have uh, pictures of uh, crucifixes and urinals and things like that. I mean, that's called artistic freedom and everything else. But they're the ones that are heavy and hot at defending this kind of stuff. So you have all the perversions advocated by the intellectuals. That's Bilam. You take the 20th century and you put it into one person, you got Bilam. He's the guy that knows Das Elyon. He claims to know the mind of God. We've already reached the limits of the universe, the cosmos, right? We're already holding by the edges of the cosmos where we could see that we already have evidence and we could hear the echo of the big bang of creation. We already understand the black holes and time and this. We already know the mind of God. Together with that, we're advocating perversion. So we have technology, we have psychic phenomena, we have all this kind of stuff. Package it all together, you got Bilam. Bilam is the 20th century. That's what Bilam is. So the parish of Bilam really now makes a great deal of sense to say Moshe and Bilam. And not only Moshe and Bilam, but Moshe when he wrote the Torah, Parshas Bilam is set in a part where Hashem is trying to show that the epitome, if you reach the pinnacle of everything else that's outside of Torah, you still have only a Bilam. You have it all, and it could even look like Moshe Rabbeinu, because when you look at Torah, all you see is primitive taboos and cultural things but the bottom line is you have people that are that are being trained and people that are trying to reach moral perfection the alternative to that of course is Bilam
example. Certainly. Again, I have to emphasize, I never meant that technology and wisdom and enlightenment and chokhmah and education is in itself bad. No one says that. The point is, this is not the cure. This is not going to better mankind, this alone. But it's certainly very important. Listen, I'll be the first to admit that the insight that psychology gives us is something very useful to Torah and Torah life. In fact, if you read the works of the Bali Musr, you see really that in a sense they're able to pick up some of the points of, of psychotherapy that are there. And the Rambam's approach and all of this, this is all based a lot of psychology and psychotherapy. It's certainly useful. It has to be incorporated in Torah because Torah incorporates wisdom. The problem is that when you're trying to, to uh, divest Torah of the Torah part of Torah and just leave the Chochmas Yisrael, the science of Judaism, or the wisdom of Judaism, or the Wissenschaft Asyudentum, or wisdom in general alone without Torah, that's where you're going to have perversion, you're going to have people like Bilam. Yes? How do you fit in the statement, I think it's initially, it says with more wisdom comes more You're talking about the, the it's, it's not a Pasuk in Mishle, but you're close. Because it's written by Shlomo Malch, it's in Kohelis. Yes, that's a, uh, I guess the easiest way of translating that, because there's a lot discussed on that particular passage, would be to say, with more wisdom comes more anguish. And that is something which we could appreciate. What exactly is the point of the passage? Interesting, I think the Siv says that Kohelis was written as a work almost apart from Torah. In the sense that it, that it embodies the general wisdom of society. That's why throughout Kohelis you have God as being used only as Elohim. Only at the very end is Hashem's name used. But the end says the, the totality of man is ultimately to be God-fearing, which is what the Torah is. So really in a sense, a great deal of Mishle, of not Mishle, of Kohelis, with a Havil Havolim, is really in a sense some of this. When he says, uh, he's well, again, I don't want to translate the because there's a number of interpretations on that. That's a very, very key phrase, and it's one that has to be be discussed at greater length. But there's a kind of a sense of the totality of Kohelis, where you're dealing with the futility of knowledge, of worldly knowledge, as a means of achieving happiness. So there is a little bit of the sense. The bottom line is, if you put it all together, that's Bilam. Bilam is the embodiment of all of the perfections of the world. So really, that's what Hashem is trying to tell the Goyim. The Goyim are saying, well, the reason why we are not like the Jews is because you never gave us... You never gave us what? You don't want Torah. So what do you want? You want everything other than Torah. You know what? You think that the solution is prophecy? I'm going to show you even that's not a solution. If you're going to try to divest the world and life without Torah. You want to live a life of where you know everything intellectually and you're wise, but you're still going to go and eat whatever you want or skirt the boundaries and eat tray for milkings and all that. And what you want is you want Torah without Torah, which is called Chachmah. That's Bilam. You even want prophecy. In other words, what does it mean you want prophecy? Well, I want to be in touch and in tune. and That's New Age stuff. Right? In other words, you, you're looking for spirituality. Nowadays, we have even this part. This is something that's unique to, to modern society that they didn't have 120 years ago. 
which is that you'll find in all of the writings that people have discovered, well, technology is not going to do it, science is not going to do it, reason and intellect aren't going to do it, philosophy is not going to do it, culture is not going to do it. There's a search out there for spirituality. That's what they're talking about nowadays. But with all the above, you still need, you still have a search for spirituality. And the conservative and the reform movement are picking up on this. We have to inject God back into Judaism, and we have to inject Torah into the lives of the Jews. But it's a emasculated Torah that they're trying to re-inject. In other words, they want spirituality without the hard parts of spirituality. That's really what they want. When you go to the conservative movement, and even the modern Orthodox movement, they say, yeah, of course, Torah is the answer. But they want a detoured Torah. They want a simple Torah, an easy Torah. They want one where you're able to go along the boundaries and go do what you want and still call it Torah and say, I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. I'm in touch with God and with myself. You know, this recent story about the guy that killed his wife, you know, in Lincoln Square Synagogue. And everybody's giving him a Yashikayach and everything else. The bottom line is, he's saying, oh, everybody walks with God differently. And it's, yeah. all of a sudden, we're, they're, they're trying to, to water down. Maybe read the Jewish Forward this week and you'll know what I'm talking about. I don't want to get into the whole story now. I spoke about it Wednesday night. But, um, yeah. But the, the fact is that everybody now wants a Torah that's not Torah. Where they could pretend that they're going through spiritual quests. And it's fluff. But it should be easy. You want to be able to eat tray for milchings, is what they call it nowadays. First time I ever, I never heard that expression before I came to Riverdale. I heard from people in New Rochelle the concept of what they call tray for milchings. That's going into the restaurants and eating whatever you want as long as you don't eat the meat. But you're not going to order the lobster or meat or any of that stuff. You'll order the salads, you'll order the tuna, you'll order the fish, you'll eat the pizzas, the breads, and everything else. That's called tray for milchings. Because you want a lifestyle of tray for milchings and say, I'm a Torah observant person. It's a different kind of a Torah. It's an emasculated Torah is what they want. That's really Bilam also. The nations of the world are saying to Hashem, we want spirituality, we want prophecy. Then we'll be like the Jews. You know what? You'll never be like the Jews unless you take the whole thing. And to take the whole thing, you got to do the rough parts as well. Let's continue. Vaito with this. So, Heimro, Betar, Sefer, Chukim, Akhoi, Fazez, Rechlis, Naig, Piv. They see the Torah as being just something that confines you. It's through enlightenment and wisdom. That if you find people at a very low spiritual level, the reason for that is because they lack the wise people who are, who are smart and, in, and enlightened to lead the people. God seeing the future. From the time that the Jews were chosen as the chosen people, they were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the reason why Jews were special. What the Goyim don't see, though, is that, yeah, the Jews are chosen and different, but they don't describe it to Torah. How do we know that? Because we know that the Jews themselves don't describe it to that. They'll come up with all kinds of reasons why the Jews are the Jews and why they've survived to this day. Because they don't seem to recognize it's because of the Torah that they are like that. And therefore they'll say, well, you know what? Throughout the ages, 
the Jews had special people, wise people, the scientists came from the Jews, the intellects, right, Albert Einstein. You go through a list of Jewish greats, of Jewish greats, written by Jews, not by Goyim, written by Jews. And you'll have Jonah, uh, Jonah Salk, uh, yeah, he's, yeah, okay, of course, sure, he's in there. And of course, so is Albert Einstein and all these people and Spinoza. And Maimonides gets an honorable mention also. Why? Because he was an intellect and he was a doctor, a physician, and a philosopher. So of course he's going to be there. How many people are going to put the Yosef Cairo in there, Shulchan Aruch? The Ramah? The Shach? The Taz? Well, the Vilna Gon maybe. Again, because the Vilna Gon knew it all. You know, the people that know the rest amongst the Jews. What? Yeah, and, and, and also, even if he didn't produce... But they say, oh, he was a great moral leader, but he knew, he knew all cultural and, and intellectual fields as well. So therefore they say, yeah, the Jews had a lot of great people. But again, they're not ascribing it to Torah as Torah. Therefore they're saying, the Goyim are not any different. They're going to view the Jews and say, well, the Jews lasted for thousands of years. Why? Because of education. Well, it's now education becomes the God, right? If you take a look in, uh, I was by the other day, they had in the RJC, um, Jewish public school federation, I don't know, whatever it is. All the public school teachers from that are Jewish getting together, right? Because education is the way. Jews are big advocates of education, but again, it's secular education. Or a little bit of Torah involved, but it's not Torah. So therefore, Jews themselves, and Goyim certainly, ascribe the success of the Jews to education, to enlightenment. Again, not Torah. Therefore, they're saying, well, if we would be as educated, as educated, and have the same emphasis as and self-sacrifice for education as the Jews, we'd also be like that. Not true. Therefore, they're saying, we need prophets to lead us. Therefore, the Goyim are, so to speak, saying to Hashem, you distanced yourself from us. You gave it all to the Jews and not to us. That's why we are the way we are. You didn't give us chachomim and leaders and prophets like Jews. Therefore, Hashem gives them a chacham and a navi, like Moshe Rabbeinu. He gives them Bilam. And the truth is, Bilam and Moshe began in the very beginning with the same gifts, the same capacity, the same intellectual and other forms of talent. They're both talented children, and they're given the same gifts. As Chazal say, Lokom Novi Yisrael, Kemosha Vumusom Kom, who was that Bilam? Again, I don't want to get into the how is that possible and all that, but let's just take it right now for what it is that Bilam and Moshe were both born with the same capacity and the same gifts. But we see how later on their ways parted. And we see the differences and how they went in different directions. Moshe rose to the point where Hashem says about him, I trust him throughout my house. Moshe Rabbeinu became an eagle. Regarding Moshe's midos, his character traits, it says, Moshe was extremely humble. We also know that Moshe Rabbeinu was totally altruistic because it says by the story with Korah, he said, I never took traveling expenses from the Jews. I never charged them for my traveling expenses. He was a totally devoted leader with no intentions for personal gain. I mean, his children. Did he set his children up to lead the Jews after him? No. Moshe did nothing in it for himself. And on top of all that, he was completely humble. He was also spiritually perfected to the point where Hashem said, I trust him. At the same time, 
that the teacher of the Jews was going from one level to another. Rabban Shalumus Olam, the teacher of the Goyim, was Yarid was sinking lower and lower into the abyss of personal gain and lust. honor, glory, fame, fortune, till he reached the lowest nadir of spirituality in this sense of character, and he became known as Bilama Russian. Why? How could two people start the same and end up so totally divergent? The reason is Moshe Rabbeinu Nizgadul Al Tairas Hashem, Moshe Hatayra, which obligates people and trains people with all kinds of rules, regulations, and fences. This Tyra is not merely just an idea; it's not an ideology. It's a way of life. It's a way of practical life as well. It's the latter that a person is able to rise and thereby sensitize the soul until he reaches the level of being called Ish Elohim, which is what Moshe was called, a godly man. This kind of person, Odom Kezem Kaddish, is called This is a person that's able to sanctify every facet of his personal life. And he's in pursuit of spiritual perfection, not the physical. Bilam, the same, was brought up, trained and raised with Chochmah, with intellect, with culture and enlightenment, without tyrant. And therefore, what do we have from him? We have a Russia with the worst character flaws. Because as we've said, and as we spent the past hour saying, Ki ein shum because Chochmah alone, wisdom, enlightenment, and culture is not going to get you to become a better person. And it will not turn you and train you and transform you into a good person. Of course, he quotes here the famous philosopher, referring, I, referring, I believe it was to uh, Socrates when he was found in a compromising situation, and they asked him, to be doing what you're doing. He says, well, right now I'm not Socrates. I'm somebody else. <laughs> Bottom line is that we go to these people for analysis and for therapy and for their expertise, but when we look at their lives, their lives are shattered. Their lives are broken. How can we go to them to help us when they can't even help themselves? Bilam couldn't help himself to the point of where a person who's on top of the world, who seeks the highest glories and honors, gets so angry at his donkey that he's ready to kill his donkey who's speaking to him, who served him so faithfully, and it's a self-destructive act. Because without a donkey, how's he going to get to where he wants to go? But he, he loses control. Total loss of control. What we see over here is that a person only through Torah is able to learn to exercise the, exercise the discipline and the self-control to be able to perfect himself and be a better and yes, a happier person. This is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to show the nations of the world. What he wanted to show them is the 20th century is not going to be the cure-all to everything. It's not the computers, it's not the college education, it's not culture, it's not science, it's not reason, it's not philosophy, it's not the intellect. None of this will lead to happiness, none of this will lead to being a better person. Bilam was the embodiment of the 20th century. If you put it all together, 
you got yourself Dilom. Yodeya Das Elyon, he knows what's happening in the universe, he knows how God created the world, he knows science, philosophy, psychology, he knows it all, but he has the greatest perversions. And that's what we see today. That's what it means that Hashem had to give the nations of the world that they shouldn't have a Pischein Peh to say that the Jews are the way they are because they're the Jews, because they had all these gifts. Hashem said, I'll give you the same gift. If you don't follow the Torah, it's going to lead nowhere, even if I give you prophecy. Even prophecy, the greatest gifts, spiritual gifts, and all this sort, if you don't control yourself and follow the Torah, you're still going to be morally decadent and degenerate the way Bilom was, the way we see things are today, nowadays, in the new gay 90s from 100 years ago. That's what you have. And therefore, really, Bilom is the embodiment of the 20th century. And HaKadosh Baruch wanted to show this to the nations of the world, to see what your mistake is. We still haven't learned the lesson. But we're still living post-Holocaust. We're still living knowing that technology leads to atomic bombs and leads to pollution and leads to the breakdown of everything, physically as well as morally. And we're still blinding ourselves to thinking if we only have more education and more enlightenment and we go to college and we get trained better and we go to the experts and we can see it all better, that's going to be the solution. Hashem was really trying to show the rating the parasha of Bilam. There's Tairas Moshe and there's Parshas Bilam. And really that's what Chazal saying in Baba Basra. Moshe wrote both of these things but it's a, a work apart. Parshas Bilam is what does it mean to have it all minus the Torah. Minus any kind of training. HaKadosh Baruch wanted to show this mistake to them in order to silence them. And to say that when they finally come to the end and they say, why didn't we make it? Because you didn't have Tyra. They said, take a look where you could take a Bilam with all of his intellectual and spiritual gifts, his psychic gifts, all of these things. He still goes down. Without Tyra, the Chochmah that he has is never going to help him. And therefore that's going to be his doom and his downfall. Bilam died like that. Only if you learn through Torah and you learn to train yourself, control, discipline, you'll understand that the Yetzir Hora is a constant struggle, it's a constant battle. And therefore only through Torah, Barasi Yetzir Hora, Barasi Torah Tavan, only will that perfect the person, make you better, make you more moral, spiritual, as well as happier. And this is something which is reviewed in every generation. Chazal said, if somebody tells you, believe there's wisdom and knowledge and enlightenment and all of this amongst the Goyim. But there is no Torah by the Goyim. Dilam epitomized Chochmah. to the point of where you have Torah minus the Torah. Everything. He was so close. He had the same gifts. He even had Nebu and prophecy. However we understand that. However we understand that. But he didn't have the moral training and the practical, the practical values of Torah life. And as a result, Bilom became what he became, and that's what we have today. We have everything with the spiritual quest. Everybody talks about spirituality. The conservative, the reform movement, even the modern orthodox. Everybody's looking for spirituality. The bottom line is if you're unwilling to go with the Torah, you're going to get nowhere with all of the intellect, with all of the insights, with all of the enlightenment. That's Chochm Bagoyim Tamin, Torah Bagoyim. If you don't follow the, follow the tire, not just learn and intellectualize the tire. Al Tamin, that the guy don't have, that's why they never made it. That's what Hashem wanted to show with Bilam. That's what he's showing to us today. We still haven't learned this lesson. 
Rabbi Moshe asks the following question. It says, Kum Hashem says, you know what, you could go Bilam if you want to go with him. But just make sure you only say that which I tell you to say. In other words, Hashem wants to prevent Bilam's curse. Why then is it? If Hashem wanted to save the Jews from the curse of Bilam, my time why does Hashem have to then even let him go, but just not let him curse? Hashem could have prevented his going, as we see from the story of the donkey with the angel. It says in Moshe that there's a lesson to be learned from, from the fact that Hashem let him go and had to prevent the curse. It's a lesson to us. The It tells us to what degree, no matter how great you are, you have to be concerned with the Yetzirah. Bilam. Bilam was, as we know, as we described, not only smart, but a prophet, or something equivalent to that. And he knew that Hashem didn't want the Jews to be cursed. He knew Shein writes Hashem is He knew that Hashem was against cursing the Jews. Nevertheless, He pulled out all stops to every degree possible to do this sin. It was a sin. I mean, how many sins does a guy already have that he could do? There's a Shev Mitzvah B'nai Noah. But Hashem tells him specifically, I, it's against my will to have the Jews cursed. They're blessed. And Bilam goes to every extent, every degree possible to go against the will of God. That's what sin is by definition. Violation of Hashem's will is the definition of sin. So Bilam knowing what he knew is willing to go to the extent to do this great sin with whatever possible uh, endeavors he could possibly do. What does this teach us? This is an added lesson to what we've been learning before. You know what? You believe in God. You know God. You have the spirituality. You have. You could be a prophet. Don't rely on yourself. Don't trust yourself. The fact is that you have that Yetzirah. Whatever that Yetzirah is, as great as you are, as much as you know, it's not going to be sufficient to prevent you from sinning. Don't rely on your wisdom. The fact that you believe in God and believe in Torah, that's not enough. Be always cautious. Always on guard, no matter what. That means you know the will of God. You know what? You can't help yourself. You can't control yourself. And to that degree, Bilam, as much as he knew, he was willing to go against the will of God knowingly. It's a lesson to us. So therefore, yes, it's true. Hashem could have prevented Bilam from cursing the Jews many ways. He could have prevented him from going. He could have broken his leg. But then we wouldn't have known the whole story. We wouldn't have been able to learn these moral lessons from him. Besides, we wouldn't have had all of the unfolding events of Bilam. But besides that, the fact that Hashem allows us a glimpse in the life of a person that wants to do what he wants to do, as great as he is, is a lesson to us. It's a moral lesson to us. It's a lesson to us to always constantly be vigilant, to constantly be on guard, no matter what. Don't, never, never be secure and self-reliant that you finally made it. Because even when you know the will of God, you know the right thing to do, you're still going to go in the opposite direction. You can't trust yourself. That in itself 
is a very crucial lesson in understanding from this particular episode of Bilam. The with this we could finally understand to a great degree the difference between Bilam and everybody else, although they were equal, but as we said in the beginning, one is a bat, one is an eagle. Bilam says as a constant refrain, like Ucha Hashem. I can't go against the word of God. I mean that's that's a remarkable statement to say. He constantly tells them, I can never violate the word of God. What God says, that's what I got to do, right? Bilam throughout. You'll notice Shani, Shlishi, Revi, Chamishi, Shishi, Shvi. They always stop whenever Bilam says that, that refrain. What God says, that I shall do. What God tells me, that's what I'll speak. What God says, I can't violate. That's, that's the statement of a great person. That's the statement of a Godel Hador, of Gedele Yisrael. What then is the difference between a Godel Hador, the Gedele Yisrael, and Bilam? Says the Alt von Kelm. He says, Avada Bilam said that, and Bilam knew that. The difference is his will was in the opposite direction. He didn't go away from what his desire was by one, one iota. And not only that, but he pulled out all stops to get his will done against the will of God. To fight the will of God and to try to fight so to speak, God himself, to get God to do his bidding, to do his will. G'dayle Yisrael went in the opposite direction. The opposite way. The mind of a Jew is nullify your will to his will. Make your will subservient. Do God's will rather than to try to get God to do your will. That means Bilam was working in an opposite direction. They, they had no will of their own. Their entire will was to do the will of God. The Orchus Chaim LaRosh, a Musa work written by the Rosh says, Ritzei basher yitzer yoitzrach. That one word sentence says, Ritzei, desire and want that which your Creator wants. Your desires and your wants and your needs should be your Creator's desires. Want what God wants. Desire what God desires. Asay ritzayin chayki ritzayin hai. Batel ritzayin chayim mipnei ritzayin It's a Mishnah in Pirkei also. Nullify your personal desires before God. Make your desires His desires. He'll then make His desires your desires. Nullify your will before His will. Dillon worked in the opposite direction. He wanted to go in the direction of, of where Hashem does His bidding. With this someone answered, a Gvaltik Akashim. There's a Bilam says, and Chazal used this as a as a criticism of Bilam, where Bilam says that um, after they came to him a number of times, the second time, he says, "Vayan Bilam If Bolok will give me his entire house packed with gold and silver. I cannot violate God's word. To do lasses, to do anything small or large on my own, I'm dependent and subservient to God. If He gives me a house full of gold and silver, there's no way I could violate the word of God. Chazal see implicit in this a criticism of Bilam when they say, hey, that's what He wants. 
He wants a house full of gold and silver. He won't violate the word of God, whatever, but he wants the house of gold and silver. So they use it as an implicit criticism of Bilam. The kasha that they ask, they have a sitter over here. So the kasha is, in the sixth parak of Pirkei Ovis, you have the following b'risa. Omar Rabbi Yaisi ben Kisma, statement by Rabbi Yaisi ben Kisma. Pamachas ha'isi malach once walking on the road, and I met an individual. Vasanli Shalom, he said Shalom Aleichem to me. Hechazarti lo Shalom, I said Shalom Aleichem back to him. Omar Ali, he said to me, Rabbi, Rabbi, where do you come from? Omati lo, I said, Meir Gudayla Shal Chacholm, Shal Sayyafmani. I come from a great city full of sages and wise people. Omar Ali, he says to me, Rabbi, Ritzayin Choshetodrimon bin Mukemenu, please come and live with us. Vani, and if you do that, I'll give you a million dollars, a million gold coins, and precious gems and diamonds. Omartilo, I responded to him, if you give me all the gold and silver and precious stones and jewelry of the entire world, I'm only going to live, I only will live in a place of Torah. Sounds very similar to what Bilam said. He's praised for this statement. Bilam is criticized for the, they see between the lines, a criticism of Bilam. Is he doing something so different than what Bilam did? Almost the same identical words. The Teretz is a very big difference. The difference is, he's saying, what I will do, any door, if you give me a million dollars, I will not live in a place that's not Torah. Bilam doesn't say that. If you give me a house of gold and silver, there's no way I can violate the word of God. I can't. Not I don't want to. I can't. Bilam's will and desire is to do it. He's chomping at the bit. He wants the house of gold and silver. He's working against God. But he can't. He just knows, I can't. I'm held back. I'm I cannot. It's impossible for me. I cannot violate the word of God even if you give me a house of gold and silver. I'd love to, but I can't. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say He says, I will not live in a place without Torah. And therefore, he says even more gold and silver than Bilam. Therefore, it's much more laudable, much more commendable. Because he's saying, give me all the gold and silver. There's no way I'm going to do it. It's me. My will is God's will. God's will is my will. Bilam doesn't say that. Bilam says, I can't go against God's will. But I'd like to, and I'm trying to, and I would like to do anything I can to go against God's will and to manipulate God's will to do my will. That's a major difference. The bottom line is both Bilam and them are saying the same thing. And Bilam is a prophet. Like Moshe is a prophet. But in Moshe's case, we're nothing. I'm nothing. I'm subservient to God. My will is God's will. God's will is my will. That's my will. In Bilam's case, God's will is my will and my will is God's will in spite of me. That's a big difference. Bilam never worked on himself. You have the same prophet, the same end result, but one says, Aini, and the other says, Lavor. I cannot violate. Here he says, Aini Dor, I will not live. That's a very major difference. So therefore this becomes a lesson. You know, interesting story I once, once heard. Reb Zusha, famous Hasidic master, was once asked by somebody, if you could trade places and be Avram Avinu, trade places with Avram Avinu, 
Would you? So he says, no. Why? Instead of a position? He says, what does God gain from this? Bottom line is, there's still one Rebzushin, one Avram Avinu. Nothing changed. So I'm going to be Avram and Avram is going to be me. But what, what does that help God? What does that help the world? I'm still Avram and Avram is me. There's still one Rebzushin and one Avram. Nothing changed. In other words, if I'm thinking in terms of what God wants, for the benefit of God and Torah and Kali in the world, Avram and Rebzushin. So let him be him and I'll be me. And then what's the difference? So we can reverse, what do we gain? Now, now if you want to be, it's your will. In other words, oh, let me be Avram Avinu. I want to be. There's going to be an Avram and a Rebzusha. Let me be the Avram and let him be Rebzusha. You know, can you imagine if someone says, you could be Richard Paroli or Avram Avinu. <laughs> I'd rather be Avram and let him be Richard and live over there in Harrison. I'll be the one mentioned over here. Instead of Avram, I'll be Richard. Terence, that's what you're thinking of yourself. If you're thinking of the world, then what's the difference? Nothing changed. That's, that's the way Gedele Yisrael viewed things. They have no rots. Vanach it's not us, it's not me, it's God's will. Bilam was, let it be me. In fact, Chazal is interesting, Chazal tells us that Hashem tells him, don't curse them because they are blessed. Why did he say don't curse them? What does it mean they are blessed? In other words, they don't need your blessing either because Bilam said, you know what? God, I'll bless them. You want me to bless I'll bless them. He said, you know what, Bilam, we don't need you. No, they're blessed by themselves. He wants to jump to the forefront and take the credit for it. That in itself is a tremendous lesson. That's the difference between Bilam and, and Moshe Rabbeinu and, and Gedal Yisrael. One more piece, just in keeping with what we've been saying over here, that I'd like to just see, that's on the back of page two. Incredible, after the entire event of Bilam and Bolok, where Bilam finds himself restrained and constrained by Hashem, and he finds himself uttering blessings, and all of this in Bolok and Bilam, the parsha ends off the following. And just the way the parsha ends off, it's, the, it's page two at the bottom right. Vayokom Bilam, Vayelech, and Bilam gets up, he rises, Vayelech, and he goes, Vayoshev the Mukomo, and he goes back to his place. Gambolok, Holach the Darko, and Bolok continues on his way as well, back to his place. Just the poetic way of ending the entire story has some import to us. After all of this, Bilam goes back to where he was. Bolok goes back to where he was. Hela Yifla, I'll call Echod Mirishoim Elu. Apella on these wicked people. How can it be? After all that they've seen, Jews never saw this. They weren't privy to this. Remember, I once told you, Praise you, nations of the world. This is the smallest capital in Tehillim. All you nations of the world, praise Hashem. The nations, give praise to Hashem. Why? Because His kindness has been exceedingly great over us. The Goyim are going to praise God for the kindnesses He does to the Jews. We've got to praise God. What do the Goyim have to do with it? Terence says, because the Goyim know good and well all of their plots and plans and conspiracies against the Jews that we don't even know about. Who knew about Bilam and Bolak? Only Bilam and Bolak. The Goyim at the end of time will be able to go, boy, all the things that they tried to do, you know, uh, Stalin's doctor's plot, and Stalin died then and everything, all of these conspiracies against the Jews how they wanted to wipe out and destroy the Jews and nothing came of it we're familiar with some of it that's the tip of the iceberg we don't know all the other ones they could praise Hashem much better than us for the kindnesses that God bestows over us and I pointed out also his kindness was gobar, was powerful was great the word gvura and chesed 
seem to be opposite sides, you know, in the in the mystical traditions. Chesed is on the right, Gvura is on the left. One is Din, one is Rachman. Chesed is a different midah totally than Gvura. It's like the difference from the right to the left. So I mean, Govar It's the Chesed that comes about from these things has to be forced on the guy. It's Govar They could see the Gvura, the strength and the power and the might of the kindnesses which are forced on the Goyim to exert to us. That's what Bilal witnessed. Bilal witnessed his mouth being contorted like the donkey. The donkey is really only an allegory to Bilal. Bilal, you're a donkey. The donkey's speech and your prophecy is the same thing. Just like a donkey is no better with his speech, he's still a donkey. You, with all of your prophecy, you're still a donkey. Your mouth is being contorted. As Chazal say, like a bit on a hook placed in Bilam's mouth, that sort of forced him to do it. So here, Bolok and Bilam are privy to this. The Jews never even witnessed this. They don't even know about this. Bilam and Bolok witness the contortions and the forcing of how, no matter how much Bilam manipulates, Hashem still is controlling and forces him to bless the Jews. It's tremendous. And they see these Pella, this Hanhogan Niflov HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Hashgochan Klal Yisrael, Especially when you understand what Bilam wanted to do, which we talked about the other time, how there's a moment in time that God curses, or that God's willing to curse, or he, he, I said in the beginning, He's critical, looks judgmentally on things. And during those days, Hashem had to negate that entire approach to the world. So they saw all these miracles. Acharnes Sheruah Bilam. All these miracles. And the miracle of the donkey talking. Bilam sees all of this. He sees all of this. All of his attempts at cursing turn to blessings. What happens? After all of that, each guy goes back to where he began. They go back to their place. Each goes back to where he began. All of these great visions and all of these great insights didn't help an iota. Didn't change them. It's amazing. It didn't help them an iota. By Yishma Yisro. Yisro is the only other Parsha named after a guy. Yeah, you would think they would, they would respond just like Yisro. Yeah. But that's what we said then. Yisro was the only guy that heard and understood after seeing all of that. Nobody else learned the lesson. Bolok and Bilam see so much. By the way, Yisro was a grandfather of Bolok. That's oh. an interesting aside. Maybe next time we'll talk a little bit about that. Because we're going to continue this year. But in any case, after seeing all these miracles and witnessing all that they've witnessed, nothing happens to them. Not an iota of change. What you learn is the exact same lesson which we've been saying, driving it home. Even miracles don't do it. Prophecy doesn't do it. Wisdom doesn't do it. Culture, enlightenment, technology, psychology. None of this does it. Even miracles, they don't change the person. They will not change your viewpoint. They won't change your perspective. You're still going to be what you're going to be. Even if you see great wonders, none of that will help. The will change your life by an iota. The opposite is the case. It's your approach to life that you're going to maintain no matter what. And therefore, and it's the little things of your life that are going to affect you more than these big major events. 
these big momentous events in life are not going to have the same impact in your day-to-day life. And that's why we go back, of course, to what the Rambam says, Hakol Lufi Rov HaMaseh, not Lufi Godel HaMaseh. A person is changed by all the little things that the Torah tells him to do. That's why the Torah has to constantly tell you this little thing and that little thing and the other little thing. Hakol Lufi Rov HaMaseh, according to the amount, according to not the magnitude of the event, but to the number of little things that you do. That's what converts and transforms a person. The little things. Stopping the sucking of the candy, whatever it is. It's the little things that cause a person to change and to be transformed. Many, many, many little things. That's what the Torah is full of. Not the big, major, magnanimous events. These big time, big ticket item events, they don't do it. It's the little things. It's a relationship is the same thing. You need the once in a while vacation, but it's a day-to-day life with your spouse. The flowers, the candy, I love you, and you know, the way you talk and it's the little things. Going away once a year on a vacation when the rest of the time you're fighting is not going to help your relationship. Going away helps as a way of buttressing and reconfirming and reigniting some of what the little things are there to do. So Dilam and Bullock lack the Torah and are unwilling to change their day-to-day life, then this big event is also going to have no impact. So you see constantly reiterated in this parsha, this same lesson. It's not wisdom, it's not culture, it's not enlightenment. It's not Torah minus the Torah. It's not even prophecy, as we now see. It's not even miracles. And we have the same lesson about miracles and prophecy in two other places. One is the Kriyas Yamsuf. It says, The maidservant sees more in the events of Yamsuf than then Yechezkel ben Buzi. Nevertheless, after the event is over, she still remains the maidservant. As much as she witnessed, as great a miracle as she's seen, as deep an insight in spirituality and in, and in God that she's able to witness, she goes back to being a maidservant later on because that's what she begins with. She never changed and converted herself. Yechezkel ben Buzi sees much less, but he worked on himself to become a prophet. He remains a prophet. What happens when the event is over? When it's all over, the maidservant remains a maidservant, the prophet remains a prophet. That's true with miracles. It's also true with prophecy. Korah, who had deep insights, goes to his doom and destruction because he couldn't convert and change himself. In the story of Bilam, we see both of these things. We see the miracles, we see the prophecy, and we see that Bilam and Balak are incapable of conversion and change and transformation because Chochmah Bagoyim Tamin, Torah Bagoyim Al Tamin. Furthermore, the lesson that we can learn from the past parshios are miracles are no substitute for Torah. A person could witness miracles, you could see Kriyas Yamsuf, you could see all of the miracles, you could see all the miracles that the Jews saw in the Midbar. That's no substitute for Torah in transforming a personality. Not only is miracles not a substitute for Torah, but Chochmah, wisdom, enlightenment, technology, these things we see from Parshas Bilam are also no substitute for Torah. But that's no substitute for Torah to transform a person. Furthermore, we see from Parshas Kairach that Ruach HaKodesh also is no substitute for learning Torah and following the step-by-step process of Torah's transformation of a person. 
Hakol toli b'rova masa. Hakol ufi rova masa, as the Rambam says, and that's what the Torah teaches us: rova hamasa. And furthermore, we see from this from this parsha as well as Rashi points out that even the shechina descending on a person, even the vua and prophecy, likewise, is no substitute for Torah. So it's not miracles, it's not wisdom and chokhmah and philosophy and psychology and technology. It's not Ruach HaKadosh, it's not Nevoah, it's not witnessing Nisim and Neflois and Gilu Shechina. None of these things are a substitute for the step-by-step process of Torah in transforming the person and making him a better and a happier person. The truth is, even being an angel is no substitute for learning Torah. The Gemara in Shabbos, Peiches says that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Shemayim and he had a debate with the angels, and the angel said to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Leave the Torah in the heavens. Why let mankind have it? After all, man will pervert it. Man is incapable of truly appreciating this spiritually sublime nature of Torah. Torah is all spiritual. Torah is Kula Ruchni. It's so sublime. It's so mystical. It belongs in the heaven. Leave your glory in the heavens where it's more appropriate, where the angels are better equipped to understanding the secrets and the mysteries and the profundities of Torah. Leave Torah in the heavens. Leave your glory. Torah, which is the spiritual glory of Hashem. Leave it in the heavens. Leave it to the angels to study it. Leave it to the angels to be able to fulfill it, to be able to fully appreciate because the angels are spiritual beings. And what does Hashem tell Moshe? Respond to the angels and what does Moshe say? Yes, it's true. Possibly on the spiritual level, on the intellectual level, you angels are greater and therefore Tyra is more fitting and belongs in the heavens. But Tyra also has the power to transform, to recreate, to be put into practice. And human beings that are faced with the Yetzirah, that are faced with the daily temptations of life in this world, they need the Tyra because they need the Tyra to transform them and to help them. They need the Torah to put it into practice, to make it practical. Yes, angels are more equipped for the spiritual portions of the Torah, but fulfilling the Torah in its most basic and most simple and physical realm is even more important. And for that reason alone, it should be given to man to help man elevate and transform himself, although he's not as great as the angels. And Hashem said to Moshe that he's right, because that's what the Torah is here. It's to help man survive in this world. And in this world, it's very difficult to survive. Even angels can't survive in this world. Hashem told the angels, you think that if you would be in this world, you'd be better than man? And we know several instances of where, of where this proved to be, uh, to be incorrect. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends the angels down with Avram Avinu and Chazal tell us. Hashem says, see what happens when you're in this world. When you're faced with the temptations of the flesh, then you eat milchigs and fleshigs. You eat trefa milchigs, you eat trefa fleshigs. You eat meat and milk together. You could be an angel, but when you're faced with the temptations of this world, if you don't have Torah, if Torah is not given to you, you're going to fall in a short period of time. Sichon and Og, according to certain traditions in the Chazal, were fallen angels from the heaven. Sichon and Og. We also know furthermore that at the end of Parshas Bereshis, the Pasik says, Vayiru v'neihu alokim as b'noisa odam. And the sons of Elohim see the daughters of man. 
kitaivus heino, that they're pleasing, and that they're pleasant, and they're goodly. Vayikhuluhem noshim, and therefore they take for themselves women, mikol asher from all that they choose. They take away other men's wives, they take what they please, they find human women to be pleasing, to be something that they enjoy, and they take it violently. Who are these B'nai Elohim? Says Rashi, Heim Hasorim HaHolchim V'Shlichuso Shalmokim. These are the angels in high that are messengers of Hashem. Af Heim, even they, when they come down to this world, they take what they want, they become corrupted, they become decadent, they degenerate and deteriorate like the rest of man. Rashi brings down in Yuma of Samchzayin Omidbeis, this, these angels were Uzo and Uziel that came down to this world and they also became corrupted. You could be an angel, but that's in heaven. Even being an angel, even being spiritually equipped like an angel, is not going to be the solution without Torah. Once you come down to this world, to survive in this world, to survive the temptations of this world, to become truly a great person, to become truly, truly a better individual, a moral person, a spiritually elevated person, a good person with good midos and good character traits, to become a person who is of a moral stature. Intellect is not enough. Even being equipped like an angel is not enough. Only Torah will help you in this world. Borosi Yetzirah, Borosi Torah Pavlin. Chochma will not help. Philosophy and psychology and science and technology will not help. Ruach HaKodesh will not help. Gilu Shechina, Nevua will not help. Even Nevua will not help. Even miracles, beholding Hashem and beholding His miracles will not help. Even being an angel doesn't help. In this world, the only thing that will help is Tyre. That's what Hashem wanted to tell the Umas Olam. I'll give you prophecy. I'll give you Bilam. But without Tyre, you have nothing. Chochma bagoyim tamin. Tyre bagoyim al tamin. If they don't have Tyre, if they're unwilling to accept Tyre, if they're unwilling to, to fulfill the Tyre, then they, they get nowhere. And one can see, even from when Bilam is going on his journey, and HaKadosh Baruch who sends the angel to stand in the way of the donkey, and three times Bilam hits the donkey. But each time, there's a very interesting lesson to us. We all know the famous story, the famous joke of the person who has faith in Hashem, and then there comes the flood, and a boat comes by, and a second boat, and a helicopter, and he finally drowns, and Hashem says, Fool, who sent you the two boats and the helicopter? I sent it to you. Why did you take advantage of it? Bilam, mindless, without Tyre, is set on his way to go against the will of Hashem. And the first time the warning comes to him in the form of the angel, but there's a way to turn back. The donkey veers off the road and goes into a field. There's still time to turn back. Hashem sent the angel. You're set on your way. Learn the lesson, fool that you are. Learn the lesson, go back. There is time. You could still turn around. You're still young. You still have your kaiches. You could still turn around. It's not too late. But no, mindless and heedless, like a fool, Bilam continues his foolhardy way. The second time the warning comes, and this time with even a greater lesson. This time it hurts. This time the lesson comes with Yisurim. This time the way is constricted, the way is narrow. There's no way around that destructive angel other than with Yisurim. And Bilam's leg gets crushed into the wall. The donkey tries to veer around the angel, but now there isn't that much space. 
Now there isn't that much to be able to turn around. It's much more difficult at this point to get around that destructive angel. You have to go through some pain. You have to go through some suffering. His leg gets caught in the wall. But Bilam still refuses to learn the lesson. And he still is mindlessly going on, heedless of the lessons that Hashem is sending. Bilam, you great kaisen that you are. What is a kaisen? A kaisen is a person that takes omens and is able to learn from his omens. And Bilam, the great omen taker and the great omen learner, doesn't learn from these lessons. One after the other, these omens that Hashem is sending him, messages, he refuses to learn because it's against what he wants. And he scrapes his leg and he learns from this only to beat his donkey even more. The third time already, there is no choice. The way the path is so narrow, there is no way to turn around it. There's no way to veer around the angel. The destructive angel with his sword is in front of you. The donkey crouches and collapses. There is no way around the angel. The path has become narrow to that point. Notice how the path narrows three times. First it's still wide. Second, it's very narrow and constricted, but it's workable. The third time, it's impossible. Hashem sends one warning, another warning, one boat, another boat, a helicopter. You refuse to take heed. You refuse to learn the lesson. Why? Because you're mindlessly set in your way to your own doom and to your own destruction. Dilom was mindless and heedless of all of these lessons, of all of these nachashes, of all of these kesems. Hashem sends him one Nachash after the other, one omen after the other. Bilam, the great Nachash, doesn't learn from this because he doesn't want to learn. You see what you want to see, you hear what you want to hear, you believe what you want to believe, what your heart tells you. As Rabbi Chonon Wasserman says, Even the intellect, even the mind is schlepped after the heart. The heart dictates to the mind. You could be a Bilam, a Chocham, Adam but you're drawn and schlepped with your heart. Your heart draws you. Your mind is schlepped after your emotions. And you could be the Chochem Mikol Adam. You could be wise as Bilam, as great as Bilam, as able to learn from omens as Bilam. But your heart tells you different. You could have angels in front of you, but you're blinded to the angels. Even your donkey could see it, but you can't see it. You can't learn the lesson. Without Torah, you're mindless and heedless.